what I recommend is ask, okay? Ask for an ambitious but not unreasonable salary or sign-on bonus Mm -hmm. or annual bonus or PTO or work-from-home policy and ask about all those things and say what's possible. And on multiple occasions, someone has given me 15K plus extra just because I asked for 10 seconds. And it was awkward for 10 seconds. I was kind. I didn't do anything wrong. It just was awkward for 10 seconds. But after that, they gave it to me, right? So ask. And I, especially if you come from feeling like you have imposter syndrome, or you feel like you come from a non-traditional background or an underrepresented group, you might feel like you don't have the ability to ask. But I would say to you, ask because your value is clear. Hello, everybody. And thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Stoshny, the founder of Dedicated and host of Dedicated On Air. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dedicated Show. Today, we have a very special panel with us. It is a data career shortcut panel. So we're going to talk about all the shortcuts for getting into data careers, from data analysts to data analytics engineers, data scientists, data engineers, and others. All right. We're calling this session Control Shift Enter. They're keyboard shortcuts. And my thinking here was that you're in control of your own destiny. You can always shift your career and transition from one career to another. And you're all welcome to enter the world of data. Hello. Welcome to the Dedicated Show. I think one of the first questions I want to ask, and this will we'll go around the full panel here, is what do you currently work on and how did you get there? Let's start with Kira. Hi. So what do I currently work on? Right now, I am working on building a team to support Meta Reality Labs as global operations. Reality Labs is the AR, VR manufacturing hardware team at Meta. And so I'd be like Oculus or Portal, or if you've heard of it, Ray-Ban Stories. So ultimately, I'm building a team to support data foundations, which is data architecture, data engineering, and data governance. Definitely need that in the manufacturing and supply chain setting. And then also building an analytics team to be able to do downstream data orchestration from our data warehouse and providing insights to the business. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Kira. All right, let's move on over to Michael. Hey everybody, my name is Michael. I work as a data scientist in manufacturing, supply chain, and logistics for NIM Group, Norfolk Iron and Metal. It is my dream job. I'm actually about to start in a couple weeks here. But I want to tell you that I wasn't always doing my dream job. I started out in a completely different domain, not data related at all, and realized I wanted to pivot into data. And it was a multi-year process to get here where I can thankfully say the last couple jobs I've had in data have been fabulous. It's been a blessing to connect with people in the data community. So I'm happy to share with you today some tips and tricks for making that happen and transitioning into data. Awesome, your dream job, that's great. I'm, I'm gonna ask you more about that because everyone wants to get their dream job. Although some would say, I don't dream of labor. Craig, let's go ahead and move over to you. Hey guys, good to see you all. Kate, thanks you for having me. And it's such an honor to be among such amazing people like Michael, come from manufacturing and are recently transferred into Feng. And I'm working on quite interesting products. Nowadays, I build ecosystems that uh, are automated and allows different teams to process documents through AI. Think of maybe a company that has a lot of paperwork, like a manufacturing company that's based in chemical products and they have to extract so many things out of these documents from pictures, some government statements or warnings and things like that, and extract that, paste it in some sort of table and run some analytics on top of it to make informed decisions. Those are the kind of systems that I'm enjoying right now building. So great to to be here among you all. Awesome. Thanks for being here. And Albert, let's hear from you. Hey, what's going on, guys? And I love seeing all of my friends in the chat, everyone uh, that's doing LinkedIn hard mode. Great to see you. So I'm Albert Bellamy. I was a Marine for 23 years, retired last September. And from there, I wound up uh, moving over to a company called Analect, which is under the Omnicom Media Group. And I'm doing, I'm a marketing intelligence analyst. I'm doing a lot of ETL, data pipelines, that sort of work. 
and I've become the, the resident Alteryx expert there. So a lot of projects that don't necessarily relate to my job that they need someone to work Alteryx, I fall in on that. Probably about half my time is spent on external projects that aren't really in my job description, which is an interesting place to be. Awesome. I love it. Thanks for sharing that. We had an interesting question here early on from the one and only Ravit. So I think we'll go ahead and start with Ravit's question here. What is one tip that you would like to share with anyone who wishes to break into data science? So this is someone who is not working with data right now. And if you want to go, oh, I was just going to say, not raise your hand, but gesture that you want to start. So go ahead, Michael, we can start with you. Thanks so much, Kate. Guys, if you want to break into data science, data science is for you. That's what I want you to know. Anybody can do it. Time can be your best friend, not your enemy. So if you take the long game approach, you don't rush things, you carefully think out where you want to go, connect with the right people, plan out how to get there and then execute. I want to encourage you that breaking into data science is your journey. It is for you and we are here to support you. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michael. Anyone else want to chime in on the one tip to break into data science? I guess for me, hi, this is Kara. What I would say is maybe focusing just on data in general. I think that there's a lot of focus on data science as a title and data science is pretty broad. I think historically we've looked at data science as being very statistical, research-based, and it is, but I think data science um, as a field has really expanded to become more about data in general. So just taking opportunities that will help you get there and that can build upon each other. I think, you know, I don't want to be too cliche, but like, I think Cheryl Sandberg one time said something about if you get an invite plane, don't ask where it's going, just ask what seat you should get on. I think I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cheryl Sandberg's book changed my life when I read it years ago. It's called Lean In for those who are not familiar with it. Really great stuff. Made me really change my whole perspective. And yeah, good things happened right after I read that book. So thanks for sharing that. I just wanted to quickly check in on the comments. We've got, I do believe LinkedIn hard mode might be winning, Michael. LinkedIn hard mode, <laughs> LinkedIn hard mode, LinkedIn hard mode. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see. We got a major dad here. Okay. LinkedIn hard mode. Oh, <laughs> look, breaking into data science. You've got, you've got some love here one. from Michael. A lot of LinkedIn hard mode. So awesome. I love it. We had another question here from George Ferrican, which... I just want to note that Ravit voted for both. So he is a guilty of being a fence sitter. You got to commit, Ravit. Which one? Oh, and there's one more here. Look, and Ravit, hashtag dedicated. I should have yeah. thrown myself into that competition. I would have lost clearly. Look at this trend here. I love it. So there was a question here from George Ferrican. He's asking, what's the one thing in your morning routine that you think helped you become successful? For me, it's not one thing. It's... Uh... I read Miracle Morning about two years ago, and that was just transformative for me. With Kate, I'm in the 5 a.m. club, which when I was still in the Marine Corps was the 4 a.m. club. But yeah, it's just going through a specific set of steps every morning. The one thing I add is, well, two things I add to Miracle Morning is I start, I, I get up and I make my coffee, and then I, I do a few sets of push-ups. But then I think the acronym is SAVER, so it's you know, silence, affirmations. You, you can read the book and go from there, but it's just a regimented set of steps that you do when you're half asleep and, and conked out. And if it's repetitive and they're all good constructive things, reading, writing, exercising, for me, that works wonders. And it, it really turned me around as far as just a worker and being able to plan my day. All right. So you're part of the 5 a.m. club. Greg, what? Terrible at waking up early in the morning. <laughs> I'm chaotic in the morning. At night is when I feel alive and I execute the things that I think about during the morning. So in the morning, when I wake up around, I'd say seven, but I do stay in bed to meditate a little bit and also uh, read about trends or technology and things like that. I'm on my phone like I was going to say, do you mean stay, sitting on TikTok or do you mean read? No. <laughs> Sometimes I do get distracted or with, with social media, but I do try to have a sense of what's going on today, go through my mind about what do I have to do throughout the day, what are the big meetings or big goals to achieve for mm -hmm. the day or small goals to achieve for the day. And then I have to have some coffee. To me, coffee settles me down and 
or gives me that booster or maybe send my mental. But I'm very, I'm a very chaotic person because I execute at night most of the time. Okay. All right. Good to know. Michael, what time do you wake up? I'm usually about 6.30 or 7. I try to knock off three things, spiritual, personal, and professional. So spiritual, I try to start the day praying, reading my Bible, thinking about how God wants me to live today. Personal, I work from home remotely. So I try to check in with my wife, my kids, say hi. I've got three kids. So it's a lot of fun there. And then professional, actually, it's reading something by one of you folks every morning. I I look at the data community. I read something interesting. I try to learn. And then as I'm thinking about that, I'm also writing a post pretty much every morning as well. Okay, awesome. And Kira, what time do you wake up? I'm in the 5 a.m. club as well. I hear I've been doing that since I was little, about when I could uh, walk. So pretty exciting. But I'm also like Albert in that I set my routine and I just have a few things I do. I wake up, get some coffee, take a few minutes to myself. I start checking my emails and start planning my day. And for me, it works because these are things that I can do. I've developed muscle memory and I don't have to think about them. And so it just works for me. Yeah, I agree. I love the 5 a.m. club. I think it gives me uh, an extra two hours in the morning to just take care of anything I need to take care of before the kids even wake up. So I also have two kids and it helps to get ahead of the day before everyone is up and, and running around. A really cool question here from Dion. And the question is, he's turning 50 in a month or two. So almost happy birthday to Dion. The question is, have I missed the boat for getting into data science? Who wants to take that one? Not at all. Let me tell you something. Every experience that you've already had can help you become a great data professional. And all you need to do is add a little bit of exposure to some data skills, the data community, meeting people, meeting hiring managers. But you already have a lot of experience. And if you've got interest in data, it's actually going to be a really great fit for you to serve the same industries that you already care about, maybe that you already have experience in, but with your new data skills. So yeah, not too late at all. I echo what Michael uh, said. So we can safely say that no company today can survive without making use of data. So if you bring industry domain on top of that data, you will be a much more powerful data science team member. You don't have to call yourself data scientist to be part of a data science team. So figure out how you can bring that industry domain into the data science group to make it more powerful. Yeah, that's great. And I see Ray, Ray posted here that he started learning Tableau when he was 49. So Ray, where are you now? Let us know. Update us. <laughs> oh, I know about him. He's good. He's good. Okay, good. Ray's still 49 for the 10th year in a row. There's a specific question here for Greg on your two-time LinkedIn top voice title. Did it change anything for you in the data AI space? So did it change anything for me? Not for me. For me, I would say it's brought me a little bit closer to the community in terms of how confident I feel to share things, knowing that I can be wrong. But when I'm wrong, I expect the community to pick up where I'm missing. And in this case, I create this atmosphere where whether I share something good or bad, I learn in the process, but I also help the community learn too. Uh, So I feel like I've created this safe space for me to be vulnerable, but also at the same time, I'm helping others. And by doing that consistent, it's probably what got me this title twice in a year, which is a great experience. Lately, I've been very into learning about startups, talking to them and even helping them and investing as well. This community also has brought me a lot of the funnels in terms of startups where I can take them to VCs or even participate in some rounds. So I've been really enjoying that in the AI technology space. So that's been good. Okay, awesome. Thanks for sharing. We've got a question here specifically for Kira. What is your advice for someone trying to get into data engineering? Oh, gosh. Advice for getting into data engineering. I think one of the most important parts for data engineering is understanding building at scale and doing so with the business in mind. And so I guess what I mean by that is being able to come up with really robust data models to suit multiple business cases. It's not solely about the technical development, although that's really important too, because you want to build performant data models and optimize those. But I would say also having an appreciation for the business. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. I want to shift a little bit for a conversation on 
let's say if a person is listening to us right now, they want to break into data science, we've convinced the Michaels told them it's for them, they could do it. There are no obstacles, you can break into data science, you could try LinkedIn hard mode, you can do it all. And now if folks really want to get started with this, I know a lot of times the complaint is, I can't get a job because I don't have experience, or I don't know where to start because I can't pick a domain. And there are so many domains out there. I don't know what I like. So if you can either share your stories or let the audience know any tips and advice that you have for actually getting started. So once they know that they want to do this, how do they show that they have experience without actually having experience? Maybe I'll start if I may. A couple things here. First of all, you can start getting experience even before you have the job. There are a lot of opportunities to leverage your current job or your personal time, just a little bit on the side doing a personal project that can get you started. But ultimately, your goal is to get in uh, the race to, to start a full-time job in data. And the way to do that is to just remember that a hiring manager is a person just like you and me. They want to hire somebody that they can trust to do the job. And so your goal is to show them that you can be trusted, whether that's by using the little opportunities in your previous roles to do data projects, whether that's by taking the initiative and upskilling yourself, doing a personal project, connecting with that person on LinkedIn, reaching out, having a coffee chat. The goal is to tell your story, show why you uniquely contribute with domain experience or data skills, the ability to do the job. And ultimately, after you've done that, you've connected with people and convinced somebody that you can help them solve data problems, then you're going to get a job. So the question is not really, how do I get my first job? But how do you do the right things to make it so easy for someone to see, hey, they would be great in this data job? Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Michael. And I know, Kira, when you and I first officially met, we chatted about your story. So I'd love for you to share what you did with your side project. Yeah, thanks, Kate. So I actually initially went into education after my undergrad. I was teaching high school math for a couple of years and just really briefly, I realized it wasn't for me. It requires you to be on all the time. And I'm actually a really talented introvert. So I decided I was going to switch careers. I actually went and got a master's degree in like data management and data science. And that was really helpful. And then I went into a consulting role where I just, I had never worked in a corporate position before. I didn't understand really much about data in the business setting. So it was really exciting, but also scary. One thing I did though, is I took my own personal interest. And so I used to run quite a bit and bike. And so I looked, what did I Google? Like Tableau, because I was just getting started with Tableau 8 when I was starting. And I Googled like Tableau. Strava or something like that, or Tableau running. And I found the Strava connector and I built a project that made sense to me. And that was really helpful. And the reason why that specifically was helpful was because I had explored the AdventureWorks database from Microsoft and I looked at a lot of forums. And to be fair, like at the time, there wasn't as much, I didn't feel like there was as much guidance as there is now, eight, 10 years later, available on the internet for people who are just getting started. But the AdventureWorks database, like I just didn't know what questions I would ask, even though all the guidance was just start with asking questions. And so when I started searching for things that were interesting to me, I had a place to start because it was where I would be curious. And I think that's such a powerful story because we all have areas in our life that is maybe non-technical where we have a passion. Like I also love running, so I'm obsessed with analyzing my own running data. I recently moved over to Strava, which for those who are you, you know, who might not know, Strava is uh, an app that you use to track your, your workouts. I switched over from RunKeeper, but either way, both of those apps provide some really cool data that you could play with. And here, I love that you were able to take that data, create some sort of project with Tableau, which is also the tool that I started with. And I think that's very encouraging to the audience that are probably sitting wondering, what data do I use? Where do I get started? Mm -hmm. There are so many places where you can get data. You can get data from Google. They have a place where you can just literally look for data sets. But yeah, we want to hear from Greg, Albert, any other inputs here in terms of how do we get started before we have our first job? Yeah, absolutely. And I can use myself, you know, as an example, being from manufacturing, as an industrial engineer, of course, you centered around data. We're talking about statistical process control to make sure that your processes don't go out of whack. You're achieving some sort of quality result. But before I joined Feng, I looked for business use cases where data would be key 
to improving these use cases. For example, I was running pricing optimization as a product manager, and I was supporting a team of sales folks, and they were having difficulty finding data to build some sort of quotes for their customers. It was B2B. So I initiated this project, shortened their time in terms of how long it takes them to find data. And the tool that I used was Power BI. So Power BI was my point of entry into this data world. But at the same time, next to me, I had my colleague who was also using Excel to model the manufacturing process. So we're in a setting where we're pulverizing chemicals and mixing it with liquids. And he was modeling what would be the final size of these particles at the end of the mixing procedure using Excel. That's exactly what data science do with Python, et cetera, et cetera. So do not underestimate the power of the tools that you already have at your hands, like Excel, and try there. And it's only a matter of transferring that knowledge onto another programming language, and then you go from there. So find data at work. If not, find data on the internet. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And those in the live audience here, let us know what tools you use. So I started with Tableau. Kira sounds like you started with Tableau. Greg, you started with Power BI. Michael, I don't know what you started with. I went from Excel to a little bit of R and then Altrix and Tableau for a long time. Okay, awesome. And Albert, let's hear from you now. Any advice for getting experience without having experience? Sure. So two things came to me that I did. And the first one is just look back at your experience and see what you've already done. And how can you recast it or rebrand it with an analytics lens? And in me looking back in 23 years in the Marine Corps and saying that when I started out, I was a logistician and I was reading these pages of this very particular code to the Marine Corps, but it was reading code. And it was uh, breaking down the maintenance status of our fleets of equipment and briefing to a stakeholder, which is my commanding officer, where, what trucks were up, what we could take to the field, which weapons were functioning. And that right there is analytics. I'm looking at an unintelligible stack of paper crap that nobody but me could understand and <laughs> translating it for a stakeholder. And then various other things throughout the career that I look back and said, well, I didn't call it analytics at the time, but that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is just doing work. If you recast it in another arena, it wouldn't make any sense to you. You can't say like, well, I can't cook because I've never cooked anything before. Yeah, just buy like a mix from the store, read the directions and, and do what it says. There are thousands of platforms out there now that some free, some paid, that trumpet in huge letters, this is the way to get into analytics or data science or anything. Some of the paid ones are good. They're a little more curated than the free stuff. But the free stuff's out there for you. So just get on YouTube and look up some of those channels if you're strapped for cash. It's going to mm -hmm. take a little more legwork on your end, but you can do it for free. And yeah, yeah I, I'd say just start doing work. It's projects and it's like Greg said, it's something that drives your passion. If you love, I, I love sports, I love sports statistics. And I'm working on something, breaking down how the, uh, the Big Ten failed miserably in the last two NCAA tournaments and stuff about that. It just interests me. And so if you're, if you get bogged down, you're still going to want to finish it because it, it's interesting to you. If I started doing a project about like corn production or something, I'd get bored real quick. Corn production. So exciting. Oh my God. Teach their own. If you've got any uh, people in the audience that love corn production, let us know. So. So, sorry if I crapped on your passion. <laughs> but listen, someone's passion is for somebody else. It could be extremely boring. Yeah, Agriculture is fascinating to someone, not me. But I, I really love the cooking analogy, though. And I always talk to people about fitness. It's you're not going to read about doing push-ups. You're not going to get any results by reading about doing push-ups or talking about it. You actually have to get down on the floor and do it. Or like you said, get the ingredients, start mixing them together and see what happens. I really like analogies. I think they, they help bring home the points. We had a good question here from Amit. He's asking this for his wife. So his wife is pivoting her career from healthcare into data. And the question is, did any of you suffer any kind of imposter syndrome when you started interviewing for data roles, especially if you did not come from a data role specifically? And how did you overcome this? Who's got imposter syndrome? Raise your hand. <laughs> oh, Michael. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Greg, okay. I don't want to keep starting first. So please go ahead. I'll just say this one quick thing. Extreme preparation. So I have always struggled with imposter syndrome because I came in to a very vibrant data community where I was a newcomer 
didn't know anybody, didn't have that background, but had to get started somewhere. So I connected with lots of folks. I researched companies that I was interested in, researched people, people's profiles on LinkedIn, people that had the career I wanted. How did they get there? What did they do? And so extreme preparation as you're you're getting ready for interviews, right? Look at who the hiring managers are listed as. Look at what the job description is asking for. Look at what the company stands for. And if you understand all that, if you spend five, 10 hours understanding the domain that you want and and problems that you might want to solve there, then your preparation is going to give you confidence. Even if, yeah, they've never met you before, you don't have experience technically, you can show them that you could easily do the job because you're well-prepared. Yeah, that's a great point. I think also practicing the what you think they're going to ask you about and, and having some projects that you could talk about. Like here, you had your running data that you could have easily told an interviewer, oh, yeah, so I gathered this data this way, put them into this tool and visualized the information and was able to show highlights. Anyone else? Want I actually, to- oh, huh? sorry. I was going to say, I actually had an interviewer look, I think, look that up and they actually mentioned it to me in my interview. Is this you? And I said, yeah, that is me. And that's my project. And we had a conversation about it because the interviewer also happened to be a runner. So it was a good conversation piece. Wow. I love it. Yeah. I think that's even more motivation for those in the audience to put out projects and content, which I do want to get to in in just a few minutes in terms of branding and content. But another thing I wanted to add real quick, his wife was in healthcare and going into data. There's a lot of data needs in the healthcare industry. Yeah. So to reduce some of that imposter syndrome, maybe find a way to connect them both. So if you can speak to how data can improve healthcare, then you'll be more in your domain and able to speak to that and reduce stress in this case. So you'll come yeah. up a little bit uh, stronger there. Yeah, that's definitely a, a great point, especially if, if she ends up transitioning to working with data in healthcare, then... She's already got that experience. Albert, anything to add on this one? Yeah, my ache was just based on the fact that he's asking specifically about interviewing. And I would say two things on that with regard to imposter syndrome. The first thing we do is we tend to minimize the scale of what we've done. So we use language that diminishes our accomplishments. Oh, I just did this. or My only role was just take all of those words out of your vocabulary and just present things as they are and let let the interviewer make the judgment as to the scope or importance of the project. And then the other thing that reminds me of when I saw Matt Bratton do an interview once or a mock interview, the young lady that was doing the interview talked repeatedly about we and about the team that she was working on that did a project. And at one point, Matt stopped her and he said, who is we? Nobody else is in the room with you. This is your interview. Hmm. And Yeah, I think that's huge is we always tend to give credit to those around us that have helped us be successful, which is admirable, except when you're the only one interviewing for a job and that interviewer doesn't want you to diminish your contributions by repeatedly mentioning people that that they don't care about. They're looking to hire you. Yeah, I think people have a tendency to to use the we. I know I say we all the time when they talk about things that we do at Dedicated and then people are like, say thanks to your team for me. Okay, thanks. Thanks, me. High five. (laughs) You don't even have a week, Kate. You're you're the only one doing it. Yeah, exactly. Heather says that this is very prevalent for women and finding a community helps. And she, thank you, Heather, suggests the dedicated circle. That could be a good start. So definitely, if you want to check that out, uh, just go to dedicated and you'll find your way there. We have a community there as well. And I think that's, uh, Kira, when we talked about the Lean In book, that's actually something, that's a book that helped me overcome my own imposter syndrome. I, I still remember my very first podcast interview when some random podcaster, and I think I was his first interview as well. He's like, Kate, I want to interview you about breaking into data. This is years ago. And I'm like, I'm still trying to break into data. I'm figuring it out. What am I going to add? What value do I have? And I almost canceled the whole podcast about five minutes before because I was so nervous. And I'm like, I know nothing. Oh my God. And I still I still remember when LinkedIn told me that this was before yours, Greg. I think I got the LinkedIn top voice the two years before you did. And I'm like, well, why? Like, what do I know? It's this whole... And even when I told somebody, they're like, you got the top voice for what? What do you know? And I think that does not help with imposter syndrome when people are like, really? <laughs> but I think one way that I really got over it is not pretending to know something that I really don't. So 
if I get a question on data engineering, like Kira had a question, I don't know much about data engineering. So all I can say is, I don't know much about data engineering, but here's what I do know. Data viz, data storytelling, brand building, and all that other stuff. And if you have more questions, go to Kira. And I think being so transparent about what you do know versus what you don't, even at an interview, and I've actually I've had that when I was going through my own interviews, when they would ask me a question I simply didn't know, I just told them, didn't know, I don't know this, but hey, can I can learn if you give me some time. I think that removes a lot of anxiety of having to pretend that you're good at something when you're not. I think so. And actually, if I could just add to, I think understanding um, where the imposter syndrome is coming from. Is it that you feel you don't belong in data? Do you feel you don't belong at the company in that specific role? Maybe you feel it's leveled too senior. Like really trying to understand what are you feeling like you're not a fit for and then trying to dig in there. I think that is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself is what is it that I feel like I'm not a fit for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good to sit down and really put your thoughts on paper too. ask yourself, what are my fears? And last thing I'll say on this is we're not going to live forever. So just do it, whatever it is that you (laughs) think you're not good at. I don't like ending on that note. So we're going to keep going. Let's see. Kelly has a question here. And I think this is maybe something, Greg, you can answer. Uh, She wants to learn more about Power BI. Any good resources that you used when you were just starting out? So one thing that I always say to people is that the birthplace of Power BI is within Excel. So if you're familiar with Power Query, you will discover a lot of things about Power BI. It started there in Excel, and then they decided that it could be a standalone product. My favorite courses for Power BI are in uh, EDX and I would say uh, Udemy. It's a matter of preferences, but what I would tell you is to stay dedicated, scope out a a subject that you want to uh, go deep into, start with Excel, maybe take some classes in Power Query, understand how to do the Power Visuals inside of Power Query within Excel, which allows you to manage millions of rows, by the way, Power Query can. It goes beyond the 1 million, 1 point something million rows limitation of Excel to even triple that without limits. So start there and then then move to Power Power, Power BI. Yes. And I saw Auntie Rask, thanks for the shout out there. The Dedicated Circle also has a course. Plus our our YouTube channel has a, a lot of free content and just getting started on Power BI. But even if you just Google it, there's so many resources out there. I think it's always a matter of which one do I pick? There are thousands, tens of thousands Mm -hmm. of areas where you can go and and get some content. Michael. Go ahead, Greg. No, I was going to say, yes, Dustin, I meant to say, stay dedicated. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So it depends on how you like to learn. It doesn't matter what tool, Tableau, Power BI, Alteryx, R, Python, whatever. How do you want to learn? If you just want to start building stuff, then go on. A data camp or, or a data quest or something and just start building and they've, they've got interactive platforms for you if you care about mentorship there's a lot of opportunities for people to coach you or people to help teach you right i even worked uh, the last two years up until last week for data coach a great team where they actually combine capstone projects and coaching with one-on-one support and, and learning materials there's so much free and paid available out there but just find something that fits your learning style because everybody's learning style is very different Yeah, absolutely. Some people like textbooks, some people like videos, some people need someone to sit next to them and show them exactly what to click and how to click it. So it also depends on your budget, right? I think to to get someone to sit next to you and show you where to click each time is probably going to cost more than a textbook. All right, let's move on to personal branding because this is a data careers talk. And I think it's so important to to just at least touch on the topic and we can go around and, and talk about what we suggest others do in terms of building their own personal brand. But just to get started with, what is your personal brand? Wherever you, I think we're mostly on LinkedIn here. I know I am personally, but how would you define your own personal brand and how did you build it? And I think from there, we'll get some good advice for folks who are wanting to build their brand as well. So we should start with Albert. Yeah. So branding, I would just say be who you are, just because people can smell a rat or a fake. So if you're trying to be something you're not, that's going to become obvious real quick. But I think that 
the thing that I discovered early on that I don't think people still don't really grasp or embrace is you can be the learner, you can be the imperfect data professional, and that's fine, and people will embrace that. That can be part of your brand and your identity. You don't have to have it all together or act like you do in order to have a brand. And so I feel like when I first started creating content, the stuff that resonated was where I came out and asked for help or just said, hey, I've literally just taken my first Python class. Like, who's in the same boat? Who's just starting to learn a coding language? And people were excited to get out there and talk about their own learning journeys and to have some kind of change of pace from the amazing data scientist who is has this incredible career and is saying, ask me questions. And so I think people sometimes get a bit weary of the going up to the mountaintop to see the, the guru and always being in asking mode. And to the dedicated circle thing, it's sometimes they want a little bit more community and, hey, we're, we're all in this boat together. In reality, we all are. Everybody in this panel is still learning things and nobody hides that. But I think there's just an appetite for that. And so that became the sort of the first cornerstone of my brand was I wasn't afraid to talk about, hey, I'm the dummy in the room that's just starting. Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. I love it. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Greg, since you're on mute, let's go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Pressure. For me, brand building means uh, step-wise function, I guess. Uh, you have to start with defining what you want that brand. And to me, is what do you want to be known for as a point of reference? When you're not in the room, when people go through their daily lives, or what do you want to be a reference for? Once you determine what that is, and it's beyond just working in your professional life. It's also at home. It's also extended community on social media, et cetera. Once you determine that, then the second thing is, how do you get there? How do you build that brand? If you follow why you think Coca-Cola has such a strong brand, it's because they keep showing up. So consistency there is something that you definitely need to have. Mm-hmm. So you show up, talk about the things that you want to be known for over and over again. I used to work at a place where we used to say something like communication until people puke, communicate until they puke. In other words, by showing up consistently and being you, as Albert described earlier, being authentic, not trying to become someone else settles your brand. It really resonates through time. And the value of that too is difficult to evaluate or figure out Mm -hmm. uh, because building a brand should be a long-term strategy for which the value shows up sporadically. You don't really find the value all the time. Like the satisfaction you get is that people grow because of you. And there are other ones, unseen benefits that you may come across. A company may show up at your door and offer you a good job, or you get to partner with somebody else and build a startup. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I've personally had so many opportunities that have come to me simply for the fact that I post frequently on LinkedIn. I've had the opportunity to teach, to speak, to travel, to put courses together, to write books. And it's all because I put content out on this specific topic that really excites me. So if folks are listening and they're not in data analytics and for some reason wanted to join this call to learn something about careers, I think everyone can take something out of this where no matter what it is that you want to be known for, Simply talking about it every single day, a few times a day, and engaging with other people that are talking about it can really make you a magnet for the opportunities that can put a big smile on your face. So just wanted to share that. And then Kira, anything to add on building a brand? Building a brand. So everybody said things that resonated with me, finding what you want to be known for, um, who you are. Me personally, I mentioned earlier, I am a quiet person in my personal life. And so even though I know having a personal brand is really important, it wouldn't be me to post all the time on social media. And so just not necessarily thinking that your brand is has to be widespread, but again, just what do you want people to know you for? So do you want people to think of you as being curious? I think if you were to ask a lot of people, they would say Kira is very curious. She asks a lot of questions. She seeks to understand. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's who I want to be known for. I don't you know, need everybody to know me as that. But if you do know me, that's pretty consistent. 
Yeah, and just quickly want to add to that, you can also have an internal brand, meaning wherever you're working, you want to be known for, oh, Kira is really good at X, Y, Z. Make sure you go to her. A lot of times that's good enough and you don't have to be known by a million people like, oh, Kira is good at this. Like a lot of times keeping it small might even make sense for you professionally and personally. So I love that you shared that. Thank you. And Michael, I know you've got thoughts on this. Sure. Yes. I think about why I came to the data community, to LinkedIn, and then why I stayed. I came at first because I wanted to do work that I really enjoyed. I love data, optimizing stuff, computers. It sounded really cool. And it really has been that. And I've gotten that opportunity. But I've actually stayed in this community. I've continued to write on LinkedIn and engage with people, not because of the data only, but because the people here are amazing. The people are good, honest people, hardworking, seeking to support their families, enjoy their careers. And in fact, a career is a long time. 30, 40, 50 years, we're in this together, right? Why not enjoy a community of people to work with over the long haul, help each other, support each other, help each other grow. So for me, the experience, the journey has been a lot more rewarding than just getting to a particular job. And for me, that has become my brand is, hey, let's enjoy the journey together. Let's help each other. Maybe it's get a job. Maybe you need a job as your first experience. Maybe you want to grow your career. Maybe you just want to help connect with other people in your industry and enjoy working together. That became my brand, again, like you said, Albert, like just being who I want to be and who I am, and then just doing that consistently. And for me, that looks like sharing once a day thoughts that I have along that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Just wanted to let you know, Andrew Jones is here from Data Science Infinity, and he had some advice to add. So he says, if you provide information or value at a regular cadence, people will follow you. There will always be people looking to learn from what you know, even if you think it's simple. A lot of times we do think that the things we know are so easy. Who cares about them, right? Throwing a glimpse of your character on top of it too, it makes a difference. And the fact that I think, Michael, you just said that people are here to enjoy themselves and sometimes even have a laugh. I know some people have a lot of fun on LinkedIn and I love it because it's just, why not, right? People want to come back to a place where they're having fun. Hopefully our audience here is having fun. We have so many comments and questions. I'm like, struggling to keep up with with the flow of them, honestly, which I love. And I know we're over the 45-minute mark, so I do want to let at least the panelists know, if you're good to continue, please stay on. But we are very conscious that you have jobs, you have lives, you have things to do and other things you want to work on here. So feel free whenever it's that time for you. So just hop in, let us know, and we will thank you for your time. Salaries and negotiations. I think that's something that is very attractive in the data space. And I think the data scientist was known as the sexiest job of the 21st century because people were promised at least a six-figure salary. And I think at this point, it's, it's even more so. And especially if you get further down into the more senior roles, not just entry-level data scientists, that number can become even larger. But I do want to hear from you if you have any tips on when you're interviewing, let's say you get to the point where you've you've got an offer and maybe you've got a couple of offers. Do you suggest that people negotiate their salary? Do you suggest that they have a number in mind that they come to the interview with and just share your thoughts on, on that whole experience and any personal stories you want to share, feel free to do that as well. One thing that people miss on most, including myself, is that salary negotiation starts by the time you apply, not when you get the offer. Hear me out. When you get funneled into the interview process, most of the time they will ask you, give me some references, three people, et cetera, et cetera. At this point, you want to show that you have a strong list of people who can approve that you are someone who can bring value. So negotiation starts at the door. During negotiation process, you have also a chance of showing confidence that you understand what you're talking about, that you can bring value. This is also part of the negotiation. And to answer the question of whether you should negotiate once you get the offer, absolutely yes, because there's always room to wiggle from a company standpoint, from a higher standpoint, where you can make them go up a little bit. Now, one thing too is a lot of people like to play the, I have another offer somewhere else. Be very careful about that because people can sniff the, oh, you're trying to play the game type thing. Be very truthful, understand your value, understand the value that you can bring, and also do some research. And finally, be open. So don't think that hires are there to hire you at a lower base, right? Because once you say yes to that offer, 
if you come in with this suspicious mind, you will not last long in that position. So negotiate all along the process by the time you hit click to apply. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Greg. And just one quick note, sometimes we're negotiating not only salaries, right? I think right now a lot of folks are negotiating to work from home because we've all gotten used to it and we don't want to go back to the office anymore. So yes, who else wants to chime in on negotiations, salaries, remote work and such? Um, I'll chime in because I have to drop, but I think the first thing is I am a firm believer in transparency and compensation. I know that is very controversial for people and there are a lot of personal feelings attached to that. I know how I was you know, raised, never to talk about salary. I think it's really important to find the tribe that you can rely on, people that are in your field specifically that you can trust. And maybe you don't ask them what is your salary, but you say, what would you ask for if you were in my role? I think that's really important. The second thing is doing your research, right? Networking, and maybe you're not looking for a role at a specific company, but there's a comparable company that has roles that are comparable to the one you're applying for. Try to network and make friends with recruiters. And you're not asking, you're not necessarily asking them for what is the pay that you would offer a candidate, but maybe you're asking them, what is the market reference point? What do you think is an acceptable range for somebody to target with this much experience? And I think when you take out the interaction that you're having with that recruiter, because you're not necessarily looking to be their candidate, people are a lot more willing to help you because you're just doing some market research. So those are the two things I would say. Awesome. Thank you for adding. And Kira, thank you so much for your time. I know you have- It was really nice to meet everybody. Yes. Thank you. And thanks for having me, Kate. Absolutely. Great to have you. All right. So- I also have a hard stop. So sorry, Michael, if I could uh, jump a line real quick. Yeah. So I have one and only one experience with negotiating salary, and I say negotiating almost in air quotes, just because it wasn't a negotiation at all. All it was, there was one week where I got three full-time job offers and one kind of soft offer as well, all at the same time. And it was totally unexpected for me. I was not ready for it, but it caused me to hesitate on all three job offers. All three were good jobs. I would have been happy doing all three of them. And all three met the kind of salary floor that I put out there. Then when they sensed that I was hesitating and thinking about it a little bit, they started asking because I've been very upfront that I had three hiring processes going at the same time. And once they found out what the other companies were offering, they started one-upping each other. And so I found myself in a situation where I, I had three offers, all of which were more than what I had initially asked for. And I had to make a decision that I, I want to Analect was not the one that offered me the most money. And so it was funny that I was in a situation I always associated with like pro baseball players where it's, okay, you've got more money than you need. Now the decision is what's the best situation for you. And so it, it became a decision about more than money was comparable for sure. But, but it was, hey, this is a little bit less money, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's going to be a more advantageous developmental situation for me. So that's why I picked Analect. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. I think I saw that on LinkedIn when you were trying to debate the the three offers. And I, that's the power of community, right? Because you got some input from other people who are like, oh, yeah, don't go for just money. Make sure you actually like the work. And there are a lot of personal uh, factors that go into that decision. Definitely ask the uh, the artist of data science. I had a one-on-one call with Tom Ives to talk it out and see what he thought. So oh, the father I definitely of went, data. went to the Sherpa uh, <laughs> father, yeah. to get guidance. Yeah, it's been great with you guys. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for the invite, Kate. Thanks, Albert. All right, Greg, you still have a few minutes, Michael. Yeah, I actually do have to run. Also, I have a nine okay. o'clock, but I, but I will hear. I want to stay for Michael. I want to hear what the, what he has to say first. Thanks, man. Much appreciated. Real quick here, let's say that throughout the whole process, you've proven value to the interviewers. Let's also say um, that you've done your research. Okay, so you're well armed with knowing your value. Okay, at this point, you get the dreaded question: Hey, what do you want? Okay, and and you've got to have this idea of hey establish trust with the person that's asking you this and be reasonable as Greg has said, and then ask. What I recommend is ask, okay? Ask for an ambitious but not unreasonable salary or sign-on bonus Mm -hmm. or annual bonus or PTO 
or work from home policy and ask about all those things and say what's possible. And on multiple occasions, someone has given me 15K plus extra just because I asked for 10 seconds. And it was awkward for 10 seconds. I was kind. I didn't do anything wrong. It just was awkward for 10 seconds. But after that, they gave it to me, right? So ask. And I, especially if you come from feeling like you have imposter syndrome, or you feel like you come from a non-traditional background or an underrepresented group, you might feel like you don't have the ability to ask. But I would say to you, ask because your value is clear. I love it. I think the other thing is ask and then stop talking. Because you said that awkward 10 seconds, it's going to feel like much longer than 10 seconds, but literally being quiet, I think makes all the difference. A lot of times we say something and then we just keep talking. Oh, I deserve the extra 15K because blah, 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 blah. And then you get to the point where you negotiate yourself out of the 15K somehow because you still want the position. So I love the advice and thank you to, to the panelists here. All right. Question for Michael Green. He's got your full name in there. It's definitely for you. <laughs> what do you think about the new data terms like data mesh, data fabric and others? Absolutely. And by the way, I know we're about to wrap up here. Kate, I want to thank you. This has been a great time. Everybody on the call, thank you so much. I hope that if you have questions, reach out to any of us. We're very happy to support you. With that said, what do I think about really any of these terms? Data mesh, data fabric, really? I think two things. One is a knee-jerk reaction and one is a longer-term strategy reaction. First, the knee-jerk is it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter what you call your data model or your data strategy at your company. The fact is, are you doing it right? Are you using some basic principles of actually managing your data and your process as well? And if so, I don't care what you call it. On the other side of things, though, there's a reason that these terms are coming. Data fabric, digital twin, all these terms, right? The idea is that you need to have a seamless way of integrating data and analysis and machine learning with your business processes to actually make uh, decisions in an automated way. And so every business needs that. So I would say that those terms just point to certain needs. And yeah. for example, instead of the traditional IT run business processes that have limited access to data, now you've got data available everywhere. And it's how do you use that in your business sustainably, thoughtfully, and optimize things. I think that's the key. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I think we sometimes do get caught up with words and, and what do we call things, but I, I love your insight. So thank you for sharing that. And Keith says this was a really uplifting talk. So love it. I agree. I think this is so cool. And on that note, thank you. Thank I'll you. see you online and stay dedicated. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.